Lord, we gladly bring back this morning and offer to you just a portion of what you have given to us, for you sustain us, you provide for us. And Lord, we pray that you would take these offerings now, that you would use them to build your kingdom here in Vero Beach and throughout the world, that the Lord Jesus Christ may be known in each place and may be praised by every tongue. And in his name we pray, amen. And please remain standing for the reading of the word. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Psalms, Psalm 119, reading verses 1 through 8. Let's give careful attention to the public reading of God's word as it's found in Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes. And seek him with all their heart. They do no wrong, but follow his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word to each of our hearts today. Let us pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your word, which is truth, and who has called us to engage in the study of that word. We pray that you would now sweeten this word in our hearts, that we might together grow in our knowledge of you and ourselves and the world that you have made that we might more enjoy the calling that you have given to us, and that we might honor you more along the path of life. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus, your Son, who together with you and the Holy Spirit reigns forever, one God. Amen. Be seated, please. Well, over the, um, I guess we call it winter here, talked to my brother who was supposed to go golfing yesterday, but his golf outing was canceled because it was 35 degrees and three inches of snow. So I guess we call what we've gone through winter. Over the winter in the past couple of months as I've been here, we've uh, looked at at a number of different ways at some of the first of the Ten Commandments. Uh, We've looked at how to count them. Uh, we've looked at the first, second, and third word, and uh, this morning we're going to step back from that, and we're going to just ask what it means for us as believers to live in keeping with the Ten Commandments. More broadly, to live in keeping with all of God's instruction. And of course, Psalm 119, the longest psalm, is a psalm that celebrates God's commandments. Uh, the, the primary word for God's law uh, occurs repeatedly, uh, 20 plus times. Uh, words for commandments, statutes, stipulations, precepts. Uh, someone once told me that out of all of the verses in this psalm, there are only two that didn't mention uh, the law in one way or another. I've looked for them. I haven't found them yet. 
Psalm 119 is a beautiful piece of poetry. I, I wrote a commentary a good number of years back on the whole book of Psalms, and I will admit that kind of when I got to Psalm 119, I chickened out. Uh, uh, how do you do an exposition of the whole of Psalm 119? Well, there are plenty of pastors in days gone by that have preached the whole way through it. Uh, I actually just read and read and reread that psalm, and I noticed there were uh, half a dozen themes that kept coming up uh, time and time again. So perhaps over the next couple of Sundays when I'm here, we'll look at some of those themes to get a big picture feel for the whole of the psalm. But this morning, we want to look just at those first eight verses, which really serve as an introduction to the psalm and really focus our attention on what it means for us as believers to live in keeping with God's law. Now, Psalm 119 is an acrostic. It's a special kind of poem, uh, and it's not unique to Hebrew. We have uh, poems in English that are based on the English alphabet. You may notice in your Bible that at the head of every eight verses, there's a letter of the alphabet. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, Hay. And there are 22 sections in this poem because there are 22 letters in the alphabet. And one thing that's a little more interesting about this, not only does the first word of each section start with the corresponding letter in the alphabet, but so does every poetic line. So there are eight lines, and each one of those lines start with Aleph, and then with Beit, and Gimel, and Dalet, and Hay. And of course, Hebrew poets did this for a number of reasons. One of the reasons would be it would make, make it easier to memorize. But another reason was they wanted to say, I want to cover my topic from Aleph to Tav. We would say from A to Z. And certainly that is Psalm uh, 119. So let's look this morning at living in keeping with God's instruction as we're taught about that uh, in Psalm 119, just those first eight verses. And you may have noticed as we read this psalm that there was a a definitive shift at verse 5. And so the, the psalm naturally divides into two symmetric halves, verses 1 to 4. And then verses 5 to 8. So let's look at each one of those. And verses 1 to 4 focus on our happiness. What's it mean to live in keeping with God's law? Certainly at the heart of that has to do with our happiness in living in keeping with God's law. Notice that you have that word at the beginning of verse 1, blessed. And it also occurs at the beginning of verse 2, blessed. That's the exact same word that starts the entire book of Psalms. Blessed is the man who, and it's a word that starts with the first letter of the alphabet. It's the word ashray. So as we think about these, uh, these four verses, our happiness in living in keeping with God's law, let's look at two things here. There are, there's the meaning of two important words. And the first word is that word blessedness. Uh, Blessed are they who. Uh, And you'll notice also that this psalm really does start a lot like Psalm 1, doesn't it? Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Psalm 1 tells us that the blessed person delights in the law of the Lord. And then we also see that word delight... um, uh, uh, not only in Psalm 1, but elsewhere, and that's one of the themes of, the, of Psalm 119 throughout the psalm. 
So, blessed, uh, ashray. What does this word mean? Because it's not a word that we use at all in ordinary English. Now, B-L-E-S-S-E-D in your English translation can be translating two different Hebrew words, which is why the Italians often say the translator is a traitor. Because you look in English and you see Genesis 1, God blessed them. And you see Psalm 1, blessed are they, but two different words. The first one, when God blesses, God is empowering people to live an abundant life. This is a completely different word, but it is conceptually related. Um, But what's it mean? We don't use this word blessed uh, at all in English anymore, but our translations still use it because uh, it's so traditional that it's hard to move away from it and because it's hard to find a good English word to replace it. The New Living Translation uh, in these Psalms has moved away from tradition. They're not afraid to do that. Um, And... They use something like, oh, the joys of those who. And that's better than blessed because we don't know what blessed means. It's not an ordinary word. But joy leads us to think that this word is a word for happiness. Well, remember what I'm talking about here, the big point, happiness in living in keeping with God's word. But translations in English steer away from the word happy, even though it's the best word. Happy are those who. Now, they steer away from it for a good reason. In English, we tend to use the word happy according to the first dictionary definition. And in the first dictionary definition, happiness is an emotion. That's all it is. It's a good feeling. And so if we use the word happy... We think the Bible is simply talking about having a good feeling. But happy really is the best English word if we take the time to move down in our dictionary in definitions, which we typically don't do. And as you get in your dictionary to about meaning number three for happy, it defines happy as well-being in every area of life. That's what ashray means. That's what blessed means. Well-being in every area of life. Ashray is what we experienced in the garden. Ashray is what we will experience perfectly once again in heaven. How many areas of your life has God created? All of them. How many is he interested in? All of them. Ashray is well-being in every area of life. When we experience ashray... Our relationships are good, well. Our bodies are well. Our minds are well. Our emotions are well. Our finances are well. Everything about us is in a state of well-being. That's happiness, like dictionary definition number three. That's blessed. That's ashray. Happiness. Uh, And, you know, uh, we're going to talk more about this, but isn't it nice that the only thing you have to do to experience this happiness is just do nothing wrong ever, and it's yours. But more on that in a moment. 
The other thing to look at is this, um, is this word law. Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. That's the Hebrew word Torah. Uh, Torah is the primary word in the Old Testament for God's law, precepts, statutes, uh, etc. And we routinely translate it law. And uh, there's something good about that translation because when we hear that it's God's law, we sense the weightiness of it. We sense the authority of it. They're not God's ten suggestions, as people have often said. They're ten laws. They're commandments. They come with the authority of the Creator. And so law is good because it has that sense of authority. But law can also be a little bit restrictive. Uh, Jewish people call the first five books of the Bible Torah, law, and it is. But it's not all legislation, is it? There are stories there. The stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're not law. They are Torah. There are genealogies. They're not law. They are Torah. There are poems. They're not law. They are Torah. In other words, law is one part of Torah, but Torah is much bigger. The best English word for Torah, the most all-encompassing word, is simply instruction. Now, translators tend not to go with instruction, because instruction seems a little bit light. Law seems weighty, the authority of God. Instruction sounds more like an instruction manual that most of us never open. We know it's there, but we kind of just go our own way and do our own thing, maybe consult it when we get in trouble. Well, that, as a matter of fact, is the way some people treat God's word. But the word does mean fundamentally instruction. Uh, turn it to Psalm um, 78 1. Psalm 78 and verse 1. My people hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. And that word teaching is the word Torah. If you don't have teaching in your translation, you might have the word instruction. Teaching, instruction, but not law. This is the teaching of a wise person. This is Torah. Uh, Or go to look at Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 8. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 8. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and do not forget your mother's Torah. Now, notice that we have some correspondences here. Listen, do not forsake, father, mother, instruction, Torah, which most of your translations are going to have something like teaching or instruction. So, what is this? law that we live in keeping with. It's all of God's instruction. It is the Ten Commandments, but it's much, much more. It's everything that God has given to us in the Scriptures because the Bible says through the Apostle Paul that all Scripture is inspired and profitable for teaching, instruction, that we might know how to live in God's world. 
Uh, I may have told you this story before. If, if I have, it bears repeating. I like it. It's about me. You know, my grandfather was a cabinet maker. My father was a cabinet maker. I grew up in my father's cabinet making shop. I know how to make cabinets. That's on the one side. On the other side, there's this kind of uh, solder, buy it at Ikea, knock down furniture that you just, you know, clip together. And it, nice stuff. I, I've built a number of pieces of it. So when we first moved here 17 years ago, we needed a, a, a corner cabinet for a television. So we go to um, like Costco or someplace and buy one of these in a box. And, and uh, I started at about 1130 at night, which was my first mistake. <laughs> Uh, and then, you know, they always give you instructions. Well, this, uh, this box didn't have any instructions in it. Not to worry. I've built this stuff before. Uh, I'm the son of a cabinet maker. I can surely do this. Well, I get uh, almost to the very end. I have like two pieces left. They won't go. Because you have to do everything in, in order. And if you don't, that, those last pieces... Well, if you've ever experienced this um, kind of furniture, you know that they always give you a back. And the back is real thin, and it's always folded. And so for whatever reason, in my frustration, I picked up that back and I opened it. The instructions were right there the whole time. So I took the thing apart only far enough to get in sync with the instructions And after that, it went very smoothly. Why, I don't know. That has always stuck with me as such a wonderful metaphor for how we tend to try to experience life. God has given us an instruction manual so that it will go well with us, so that we will experience well-being in every area of life. But as with so many instruction manuals, We tend to put it on the shelf and figure, my granddad, my dad, my own experience, I can figure it out. And then, and only when it doesn't work and we're stuck, do we say, maybe I ought to consult the instructions. How much better life would be if we just heeded God, uh, heeded the book that he has given us as the instruction manual, and lived in keeping with it. Twice it says, blessed, blessed, the happiness of those who live in keeping with God's instruction. So the meaning of these two key terms, blessed means well-being in every area of life, and law means instruction, all of God's instruction throughout the scriptures. Now let's talk about that little trickier part, the meaning of living in keeping with God's instruction, and notice the language uh, in the psalm as we go back to uh, Psalm 119. Blessed are those whose ways are... This, doesn't this encourage you? Blessed are those whose ways are blameless. Blessed are those who keep his statutes... They do no wrong. They follow his ways. Ways that are to be fully obeyed. Talk about weight. All you have to do to experience well-being is seek God with all your heart. Always do everything that he says. Do no wrong. 
uh, turn not away ever in thought, word, or deed, and you will be blessed. Now, isn't that an encouraging note to go home on? But we, we do have to feel the weight of that. That's what the text says. That this blessedness is for people who are blameless. That's the language of the text. Now, how do we understand that? Well, there are two principles, and I think these principles are operative simultaneously. The first is what I would call the law principle, and that's being articulated here. There is a law principle in the Bible, and the law principle simply says, do and live. The law principle says that if anyone will simply live in perfect keeping with God's law, they will inherit eternal life. That's the law principle. You can earn, I know you're not used to hearing this in a Reformed and Presbyterian church, you can earn your way into heaven. All you have to do is perfectly keep God's law. That's the law principle. We see that law principle at work originally in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. They were in heaven. The the garden was a sanctuary. It was paradise. They were in heaven. And to stay in heaven, see, they had a head start. They didn't have to get there. They started there. But to stay in heaven, all they had to do was keep the commandments, the law principle. Now, they, they had life. They had righteousness. They were righteous before God. They were alive in God's presence. But their righteousness and their life were not confirmed yet. They were kind of on probation. And the only thing that they had to do to get off of probation and be confirmed in eternal life with perfect righteousness, all they had to do was keep God's law. That's the law principle. I won't go into detail at all to talk about how that law principle gets put into practice again in the nation of Israel. But that law principle is still operative. God says to you, if you want to earn eternal life, I'll give it to you. Just obey me perfectly. Remember the guy who came to Jesus. He said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus did not say, put your faith in me. Did he? He said, you know the commandments. All you have to do is keep them. And the guy said, that's all? Well, I've been doing that all my life. And so Jesus said, really? Take everything you have and uh, give it to the poor, and then you'll have eternal life. And the guy went away sad. And what Jesus was doing was showing him that he hadn't even kept the first commandment, which is, no other gods before me. Because he couldn't part with his material prosperity. That was his God, not the true and living God. But notice, Jesus didn't didn't correct him in in, in saying that, You can't inherit eternal life by your obedience. Jesus affirmed that. What he did show him was, not that you can't inherit eternal life based on your obedience, but that he hadn't. That's the law principle. And of course, 
we ought to be very thankful for that law principle because not only did Jesus live under that, did Adam live under that law principle, but so did Jesus. When I grew up, I, I loved my tradition. I didn't grow up Reformed and Presbyterian. I loved my tradition. It taught me so many good things. I was converted in my tradition. But like all traditions, it had a few holes in it. When I grew up thinking of the work of Christ, the only thing I ever heard was Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins. Well, who can complain about that, right? That's good, yes? But there's more to it. Before Jesus dies on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, what did he do? He lived a life of perfect obedience. That's why we as Reformed and Presbyterians divide Jesus' obedience into two. We speak of his active obedience. He kept the law perfectly for us. And then we speak of his passive obedience. He suffered to pay the penalty for all of our sins. And you have to have all of that to have a full and rich understanding of God's saving work in your life. You see, you are saved on the basis of law-keeping. You are saved on the basis of justice. Jesus kept the law perfectly for you. And so when God looks at you, he looks at somebody who's been perfectly clothed with the righteousness of Christ. It's because God is just that I, I know that sounds strange, right? We think, oh, I'm sure I'm getting into heaven because God is love. I'm sure I'm getting into heaven because God is just. Jesus lived a perfect life for me, and he died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins. God cannot be just and condemn me. Because that would be, what do you call it? An attorney here might know. You know, you can't be tried twice for the same crime or something like that. I don't know. Double jeopardy. I don't know if that applies or not, but it sounds good. The point is that God has already taken care of my need to obey And my failure to obey in Christ, and because God is just, he can't say, well, Jesus lived a perfect life of righteousness for you. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins, but you're going to do it also. I would simply say that's not, that's not just, that's not fair. God is just, God is fair because of this law principle. But because there's the law principle... It's a real one. We really can inherit eternal life if we obey. We just don't. There's a grace principle in Jesus. That we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Because Jesus is the just obeyer and dyer, we graciously receive the salvation of God. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, the Lord's Supper focuses our attention not on the active obedience of Christ, but on his passive obedience. It focuses on his willingness to die, to pay the penalty for our sins in obedience to the Father. We're justified by grace. So since we're justified by grace, I guess how we live with regard to God's instruction doesn't really matter, does it? No, it does. See, we obey not because we think our our obedience is going to earn us anything from God. 
We obey because Jesus has earned it for us and we want to show our love and our gratitude to God. Uh, and that's why. It, you can have two people doing the exact same thing, but they're doing it out of different hearts and different motivations. One person striving, striving, striving to do what God says, but they're doing it because they think if they only do it well enough, then God will love them. Then God will bless them. Whereas others are doing the same thing. They're striving, striving to live in keeping, but it's because they know God already has loved them. And because God will bless them, not because of how well they perform, but because of how well Jesus has performed for them. It's the grace principle. But it's a grace principle that only, that only elates our hearts when we understand it as coming in the context of the law principle, where God offers us eternal life. And then we see that we can't merit that eternal life because we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But then we see Jesus, who never sinned, never fell short, kept God's law perfectly, and then went the extra mile by dying to pay the penalty for the times when we have. Grace. What else can we do but yield our hearts in grateful, loving obedience, striving to live in keeping with God's instructions. That's the happiness of living in keeping with God's instruction. Now let's turn our attention to those last four verses. What, what is going on in our heart? Our heart for living in keeping with God's instruction. And there are two things going on here. Verses 5 and 6 talk about our longing. Don't you love the, the move from 4 to 5? <clears throat> you have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. <clears throat> and if we hear that, we think, who can do that? Those first four verses could lead us to despair. But then verse 5 says, in all honesty... Uh, oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. We hear God say, do this and live. And we say, I, I just, I, I long for the day when I would live in keeping with God's commands. When I would be able to read the Ten Commandments and not feel a twinge of conscience. I long to read the teachings of Jesus and not feel any sense of shame because I realize so acutely how I fall short. Notice that, that deep and honest longing. Oh, that my ways were steadfast. I, I wish they were. What's the implied but? But they're not. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. What's implied about what happens to us when we do look honestly into the teachings of God in the Bible? What do we often feel? We often feel shame. We, we wish that weren't the case. And so we have this deep longing. Because, you know, we were created to live in keeping with divine instruction. 
We all know that deep inside. Even people who will not acknowledge that there is a God, deep inside, underneath all those layers, we know why we were created. We know our Creator in one way or another. We know that He is holy and we were to... We were created to live a holy life along with our holy God. And we have that deep longing for this deep level integrity, integrated. Our lives integrated with what we know we are here to do and to be like. We long for that, but we don't always experience it. Often, instead of the satisfaction that we should experience, we consider shame when we consider all God's commands. We long to live in keeping with God's teachings. We long for there to be no shame, no twinge of consciousness. That is our longing. And verses 7 and 8 talk about our resolve. Our resolve to praise and our resolve to obey I will praise you with an upright heart, notice, as I learn your righteous laws. Aren't you glad that God understands the difference between justification and sanctification? Isn't that a good thing? He understands that he designed a system whereby you are justified in a moment. The judge says not guilty, and from that moment on, God views you as perfectly righteous, having always kept all of his commands fully, never once having violated any of them, you are justified in a moment. Then God designed a system of sanctification whereby you are going to actually become perfect through process over time, and he didn't have to. He could have sanctified you in a moment. How many of you ever thought, why didn't he do that? But get this. God is okay with you coming to perfection through time and through process. I will praise you as I am in the process. That means if God is okay with you becoming perfect through process... Who else should be okay with you becoming perfect through process? You should be. Once you see that God is okay with you growing through time, and from one perspective, only one, he doesn't expect you to be perfect now. He expects you to grow in perfection over time. Then you can take that view of yourself, and in some ways you can lighten up a little bit. And then once you see that it's okay for you to become perfect through process over time, then you begin to say, well, if that's true of me, it must be true of the person sitting beside me. So if, I'm, if God doesn't expect me to be perfect immediately, but through time and over process, then I'm not going to expect myself to be perfect immediately, but I'm going to give myself some space to become perfect through time and over process. And I'm going to do for others what I want them to do for me. I'm going to give other people the space to become perfect through time, through process. I'm, I'm going to lighten up on them as well. So we, we resolve to praise God because he's given us space to grow. And we resolve to obey God. Notice the last verse, I will obey your decrees. 
Oh, that my ways were steadfast. I know they're not, but I'm going to resolve once again to live in keeping with divine instruction. And you got to love the last half line. Do not utterly forsake me. You see, it's all grace in the end. Do not utterly forsake me, God, because my only hope is that you will continue that good work in me that you began. And you will eventually complete that work of justification and sanctification uh, in my glorification. It's grace in the end. And so what a wonderful privilege we have of at the end of this sermon and at the end of this worship service, celebrating the gift that God has given to us in the Lord's Supper. God says to us throughout his word, do you want to know how to inherit eternal life? It's easy. You know the commandments. And we say, I hear you. Not quite so easy. Adam and Eve didn't do it. And they had no sinful nature. So are we surprised that we sin against God, having come into the world not positively righteous as they were, but with a sinful nature. Do this and live. Oh, I I, I wish I did, but I don't. Oh, that my ways were steadfast. That's not despair. That's just honesty. It's honesty that leads us to the table. There is one whose ways were perfectly steadfast. There is one who did no wrong, kept his statutes, followed his ways, fully obeyed the commandments, was blameless in every thought, in every word, and in every deed. And he did that not only for himself. He did that moment by moment, consciously for you. So that the day would come when you would embrace Christ and you would receive that beautiful clothing of the perfect righteousness of Christ. His act of obedience replaces your disobedience. The Father looks at you as one who is perfectly righteous. And how how much did he love you? He loved you so much that he said to his father, you know, as I know that the wage of sin is death. And they have sinned and fallen short of the glory. But I'm willing to pay that penalty for them. I'm willing to bear the eternal wrath of the father for them so that they never will have to. And so God's so good. You know, he, he, different learning styles, we can read about them in modern education books. I have, you probably have as well. I have my Hebrew students at the very beginning read about learning styles so that they'll know what their style of learning is. And they'll be able to use whatever their style of learning is to hopefully succeed better in studying first-year Hebrew. Uh, modern educators didn't invent that. God did. God knows that some of us, some of us hear it. Some of us are tactile. And so for those of us especially who are tactile learners, but, but for all of us because we all benefit from it, God's given us the supper 
so that we can, we can, we can feel the gospel. We can smell the gospel. We can taste the gospel. Uh, I tell my Hebrew students, when you're learning your vocabulary, say it out loud. Listen to it. Look at it. Write it. Use as many senses as you have at your disposal because the more senses you use, the deeper you get it. I didn't invent that. God did. So he gives us, as Glenn prayed this morning when the elders were praying, uh, he, he gives us the creation through which he speaks to us. He gives us his word. He gives us the Lord's Supper so that we can experience living in keeping with God's instruction. How we have failed, how Christ has done it for us, and how we resolve out of love and gratitude to continue making progress, moving further down that path until God finally does bring that work to completion in each one of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we pray that you would be kind to write this word on our hearts. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. And so grant the grace of faith that we might have ears to hear what this word says to us, that you would write it on our hearts and that it would shape how we strive to live in keeping with your instruction. Not because we think thereby that we will inherit with an honest realization that we sin and fall short of your glory, but out of great, great gratitude for Christ in his obedience on our behalf. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, let's respond.